Welcome to Soli Church. This week, Pastor David Deutsch continues our study through the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Enjoy. You may be seated. Church, take your Bibles and move them over to the Gospel of Mark. As we continue following Jesus through this Gospel, Last week we saw that Jesus went around preaching the kingdom. And this morning we pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 1. Hear the word of God. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Lord Jesus, this is your story that you have grafted us into. And I pray this morning that the voice that the saints at Soli hear is not my voice, but yours. Please accomplish this among us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here in our passage, we have an inspired remembrance We remember that we believe that Mark, in writing his gospel, is actually giving us Peter's witness to Jesus in this gospel. So while Mark is doing the writing, we are hearing Peter's words. And I just wonder if in recounting this moment, as Peter is telling Mark this part of the story, if a slight smile doesn't come across the face of Peter And maybe a little tear rolls down his face as he tells Mark, this is how I got into the story. This is where the story of the kingdom begins for me. He called, follow me. And like our father Abraham, with no hesitation, no questions, no discussion, no bargaining, and no negotiating. We just simply left everything and followed Him. Because when God calls, and when Jesus calls, His command creates the response. Let me say that again. When God calls, and when Jesus calls, His command creates the response. Notice here that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. This is not like we're going to see later in Mark where people were flocking to Jesus. No, Jesus here takes the initiative. Peter, who is a Simon here, and Andrew, and James and John, their father, they're just minding their own business. They're doing their daily labor. They are not chasing Jesus, pursuing Jesus, seeking to follow Jesus at all. They're simply going about their daily bread work that they always 
did. But then Jesus comes and He seeks. And notice the way the passage lays this out. Verse 16, it says, And He, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew. Verse 17, And Jesus said to them. Verse 18, And they followed. You see, that's the pattern. Jesus comes. Jesus pursues. Jesus chases. Jesus speaks. Jesus says follow. And we follow. We leave. Whatever must be left to follow Jesus. To get in line behind Jesus. And let Him lead us where He would have us to go. There's no talking back. There's no questioning. There's no bargaining. There's not even a knowledge of where you're going. Like Abraham, get up and go. Where? To the place I will show you. When? When I show you. You see. Following Jesus is not an affair where Jesus up front says, Here, here, let me tell you in advance the story. You want to know why? Because you run the other way. Because just as our brother just read in the Scriptures, it has not only been appointed to you once to believe, but it has been appointed for you to suffer in His name. And if we knew the road, we'd hit the road. So Jesus says, follow me. But the wonderful thing about Jesus is that He trailblazes that road. He is the author and finisher of our faith on that road. He's not one of those examples that stands back and says, walk that road, I'll cheer you on. He says, walk the road behind me because I walk it in front of you for you. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. This is a grace call. There's nothing in Peter. There's nothing in Simon. There's nothing in John. Okay? This is like... Uh, Bo Morgan and his father putting together the football team at Beacon Hill. If you're on the football team at Beacon Hill here, nothing against you. All right? Uh, Glad Parker's not here. But it's not exactly as if they're choosing the best football players in the county. All right? I don't say that. They're good football players, but they're mostly basketball players. All right? So if you're going to line up a basketball team, these might be the guys that you choose. But if you're lining up a football team, maybe not the guys you would start with. This is kind of what's going on here. Jesus is absolutely going to turn the world upside down. He's going to start the church. He's going to bring in the kingdom. He's going to cast out demons. Caesar's kingdom is coming down. Jesus' kingdom is coming in. So who do we go get? All the guys that don't qualify. All the guys that would never make the team. We're not going to start with the kings and the priests and the power mongers. We're just going to go out and get some fishermen. We're going to get some rugged, bearded men who know what it is to work for their daily bread. The guys that we would never think. These men, listen, become the foundation of the church and the fount of the kingdom of God on earth. This is the first fruits. And who does he choose? Some brothers. Some brothers that, in which they would have no appeal to us. These are not the ones we would have chosen to start a kingdom with. We would have never chosen them to start a movement with. But Jesus does, you see. Jesus starts with those who are not qualified. 
Jesus starts with those who do not deserve. Jesus starts with those that do not have a pedigree for what they're about to become. They have a pedigree for what they're doing, fishermen. But they have no pedigree for being fishers of men, you see. And so this call is a call of absolute grace. There is nothing that would commend them to Jesus, and that's what makes the call so wonderful, because Jesus is going to call them anyway. He looks, he sees, I think I'll, I will start my kingdom with these guys. And then, we'll see in a couple of weeks, he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll up the ante a little bit. I'll get one of their enemies, and I'll add one of their enemies to this group as well. Because when you get to Matthew, we think of, oh, Matthew is a tax collector. Guess where Matthew's toll booth was? At the Sea of Galilee. Guess who it was that Matthew had been fleecing for all of these years as a tax collector? Peter and James and John and, and Andrew. The very people that he had been fleecing, using the authority of Rome as a traitor, Jesus says, I think I'll put these guys together as my followers. It's amazing. Grace. It's a grace call. It's a call that comes to the undeserving right where they're at, and it breaks into their world and completely disrupts them in every way. But not only is it a call of absolute grace, it is a call that is absolutely in every way effectual. This is a call that comes with its own answer. This is the power of God on display. When Christ calls these disciples, follow. That just happens. It's built into the scenario. There's a power in the voice of Jesus that is the power of God. And when he says, follow me, they follow. And I want you to see that this is the way that the voice of Christ works all throughout the Gospel of Mark, not only when it comes to people, when it comes to all of creation. When Jesus speaks, it happens. The answer is built in to the power of the one who is speaking. Turn over with me to chapter 4. And verse 39, chapter 4, and verse 39. These are all passages we will get to later on. But in chapter 4 and verse 39, I just want you to see the power of the voice of Jesus. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. You want to talk about power? You want to talk about the power of a call? Who talks to the wind and it obeys? Who talks to the waves and it obeys? Who says to the creation, do this, and it does it, you see. The same one who speaks to the wind and the waves and the wind and the waves obey is the same one who speaks to Peter, the same one who speaks to Andrew, the same one who speaks to James, and the same one who speaks to John and says, follow me. And like the wind and the waves, they just get in line and they follow because it's this voice, it's this word from this one. Turn over to chapter 5. Look at verses 41 
and 42. Here we find a young girl who has died. Jairus' daughter. And look at verses 41 and 42. Taking her by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Here lays a girl dead, and Jesus says, rise, and she rises. Why? Because that's the power of the voice of Jesus. That's the power of the call of Jesus. Not only can he bring about the stillness of a storm, Jesus can figure out the resurrection of the dead with the power of his voice. Turn over to chapter 7. Look at verses 34 and 35 of chapter 7. Here we have a deaf man. And the Bible says, And looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said to him, Ephratha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus can speak with his voice, and not only can he calm the storm, not only can he raise the dead, he can open the ears of those who are deaf just with his word spoken and the power of his word. And then turn over to chapter 14. My mom was asking me about these verses this week. We're not going to get into their interpretation. I just want you to see the power of the voice of Christ. Mark chapter 14 and verse... I wrote that down wrong. It's not chapter 14. Mom, do you remember where you were reading it last week? Is it 13? Yes, it is 13. Thank you, Teresa. No, it's not 13 either. <laughs> Here's what it is. Jesus walks by a fig tree, and he tells the fig tree, you ain't producing fruit. And guess what happens the next time we see the fig tree? It's dead. No, it's 11. Okay, it's somewhere. This always happens to a preacher. When he's writing verses down, it always happens. But you get the point. Jesus not only has the power through his word to bring life, he has the authority of his word to bring judgment. And to bring death. And what you'll notice is none of these things, whether it's deafness, whether it's a fig tree, whether it's creation, whether it's death, or whether it's Simon and Andrew, no one speaks back to Jesus and says, ah, let me, let me think about this. Ah, let me pray about this. Let me consider my options first. No. You see, when Jesus comes to call, the answer and response is in the call. The call of Jesus is the power of Christ on display. And he creates our response within his call so that when he calls, we simply follow him. You see, let's turn back to chapter one. We not only see then that this is a grace call, and it is a effectual call. It brings its own response with. And then, beloved, listen, this is so important for us to get. Because this is not about us having to worry about having to work up within ourselves power we don't have. The power of Christ's word is the power to speak into a situation and absolutely redeem it. 
Absolutely renew it. Absolutely save it. Absolutely take and deal with everything that would stand against him and reorient everything to line up with him. That is why there is no person ever, no situation ever that is without hope. There's nothing. There's no circumstance in life. There's no situation in life that Jesus cannot speak into and redeem it and save it. There is nothing outside the power of the voice of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus brings his voice to bear upon something, it simply lines up behind him. It follows. And that leads us to the third thing that this is. This call is not only clearly a grace call because they don't deserve it, they're not fit for it. It's an effectual call because it has the response within it. When he calls, we go. But thirdly, it's a transformational call. It doesn't leave things as they were. With it, not only is there an answer, but there's actually a change and a transformation. These men were fisher men. And I don't know exactly how uh, Simon and Andrew's business was doing, but it's fairly clear from verse 20 that James and John, the sons of thunder, they had a pretty good little business going on there. If you look at verse 20, it says, He called them and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat. So this is a transgenerational family business, father and sons involved in the fishing business. And you will notice this little term that's not to be thrown away. As I teach my students at Beacon Hill, the Holy Spirit never, ever, ever wastes a word, ever. And so every word of Scripture matters. And you will notice what it is that Mark writes here, what it is that Peter says here. That's probably a little humbling for Peter, right? Peter's got his own fishing business, and he's the one telling this story. James and John has his fishing business, and he kind of says, well, we were bending nets, but James and John, their father's there, their boat is there. And oh, by the way, they had servants too. So they got quite a business going on here. It says in their boat, and they were the hired servants as well. So James and John have enough of a flourishing business to not only have their father involved in it in a boat, but they have servants as well. So this is quite the business they have going on here. And so these men are very adept at what they do. They're fisher men. But they are not fishers of men. You see, they are being called to something that is more than they are. They are being called to something that, though it shares the same words, is completely different than they are. They might be fishermen, but they are not fishers of men. And so you'll notice the way that this is said in verse 17. I love this. Jesus says this, follow me. He says this, and I will make you fishers of men. Not that I found you as a fisher of men. Not necessarily that you're adept for it or to have all the gifts for it or whatever. But I will make you fishers of men. I will bring a transformation that you yourself can not bring, you see. Who is going to make them? Well, not themselves. Jesus doesn't say to these four men, go out, take some classes on becoming fishers of men. I'll send you to school to become fishers of men. Go out and learn what it is to be fishers of men. And then when you've made yourself fishers of men, come back and see me. That's not what he says. This is not a self-help program. This is not a self-transformation program. This is Jesus looking at these men 
who are being called to a vocation that in themselves they know nothing of, but it is a kingdom vocation. And Jesus is not only saying, follow me, he says, I will fit you. I will fit you for the task at hand. I will make you fishers of men. And so, beloved, listen, this is so important for us to grasp. Jesus alone, Jesus alone is the one who transforms us. Jesus alone is the one who transforms us into his image. And Jesus alone is the one who transforms us for our calling. Jesus alone is the one who fits us for what he is calling us to. It is never us, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to thy name and thy name alone be the glory, the psalmist says in Psalm 115. And that is why this is the case. Jesus alone is the one that transforms us because Jesus alone is the one who gets the glory for fitting us for his calling on our lives. And even though that calling might be more than we think we can handle, it's not more than Jesus can transform us to. Listen, this is so important. Though the call to follow Jesus is immediate, the transformation of the disciples is slow. You must get this. Jesus says, follow me. Boom, they're in line. I will make you fishers of men. What I mean is, it's going to take a long time for this to happen. Becoming a follower of Jesus is immediate, but the transformation is slow. These brothers follow immediately, but they are not fishers of men immediately. These brothers are slow learners. They follow, but they have no idea what it means to follow. This is the power of the voice of Jesus. You see, we often get this backwards in the church. This has been driving me nuts for years. I don't know why we can't understand the order of things, right? Here's the order of things. As you're going, make disciples. How? Teach for five years and then maybe someone gets baptized. What? Have you read, have we ever read our Bibles? As you're going, Make disciples. What? By what? Baptizing and then what? Come on. Do you know the Great Commission? Yeah. Baptize and then teach to obey. We spend 50 years teaching to obey and maybe put the water on at the end. We have decided that Jesus doesn't know what he's doing with his own commission. And if we were Jesus, we wouldn't even have these brothers. Because we would say, why do you call men that you know three and a half years later are still not going to get it? How's that for a leader? Right? Why does Jesus do what? What's wrong with Jesus? These brothers, after three and a half years, are still not going to get it. But these are his men for his calling. We are so backwards. It's crazy. We're so upside down. Show me your perfect resume up front, and then we might give you a shot. No. Jesus is the opposite. Get behind me, follow me. If you're willing to follow me, I'll make you into what you're not. I'll transform you into what you're not. And you are the one. I'll be very, very patient as I do. 
Nate, I'm doing this for you, all right? Because I love you so much. I'm going to give you guys a definition of discipleship. Don't ever forget this. This is a biblical definition of discipleship. Discipleship is a grand display of the patience of Jesus towards you. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is the grand display of the patience of Jesus towards you. Because you want to know what? The expectation of Jesus is that even after you've been with him for three and a half years, you're still not going to get it. Let's go over and look at a passage that's midway through the story. Peter probably had a rough time telling Mark this passage. I would have skipped it. If I was narrating my life, I'd have just skipped this part. But Peter doesn't. So let's go to Mark 8 for a moment. And I have this one right. I want us to get to the heart of this discipleship and the heart of this transformation. Because our expectations is that if, you, if somebody knows something, automatically they're doing it perfectly. No, 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 no. That is not the way that Jesus shows us this. And this is so important because Jesus understands it's one thing to follow him, it's another thing for the transformation to take place. And it's so slow and it takes so long for us. Let's begin in Mark chapter 8, look at verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you all say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one. Oh, amen. Who am I? You are the Christ. Peter says it. He's the rock-solid one now. Transformation complete. Nothing to worry about after this until we read the next verses. Right? And he began to teach them. Look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed after these days. And he said this to them plainly. And then the one who had just said, here is the Christ, does this. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine getting up into the face of Jesus? And saying, Jesus, listen, I'm with you, but you're, you're completely wrong here. Listen, I fear ever having to go before my mom and dad and disagree with them. All right, rebuke, rebuke my, it's just like, oh, oh, if we ever have to come to loggerheads with my parents, it's like the most fearful thing in my life. But this brother is going to the face of the Son of God and saying, I got some issues with you, and I got some issues, right? Jesus, I need to help you get along here. He's rebuking Jesus right after he's confessed Jesus. And then, look at what Jesus does. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Listen to this. You can go from being a faithful confessor of Jesus to Satan in 30 seconds. It just happened. Right here. Transformation incomplete. Transformation incomplete. Is it true? Transformation? Yep. Peter's coming along. Is he done? Oh no, because he can be Satan really fast. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then here's the thing. Listen, look at the end of that verse. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, 
but on the things of man. Beloved, it takes so much time in our lives. Let me say this. It takes so much time in our lives and so much patience from Jesus for us to learn to set our minds on the things of God and not the things of man. It takes so much time. And so you want to know what? Aren't you so glad that Jesus is patient with you when you're satanic? You say, well, Mr. but I'm not saying, oh, you are. So am I. Any time that I mind the things of man more than I mind the things of God. It's my little satanic moment. It's your satanic moment where you do what Satan did. You try to what? Become God. When you mind your own things more than you mind God things, you are putting yourself in the place of God, and that's what the devil tried to do. You see? So here's Peter, halfway through the transformation process to becoming a fisher of men. If he was on your team, would you cut him? You would. But Jesus didn't cut him. Because Jesus doesn't cut us from his team when we stumble and fall. Jesus recognizes that his transformation of us takes a lifetime. And so he doesn't rush it. He doesn't rush it. It is a true transformation. Peter is truly a different cat than when Jesus got him. But he's not done. He's not finished. And as a matter of fact, this is the midway point. Peter's great moment comes at Jesus' greatest need, right? Peter's greatest satanic moment comes at Jesus' greatest need, and that's at the cross. I will die with you before the rooster crows. You will have denied me three times. Aren't you glad that discipleship means Jesus being patient with you while you follow him? Amen? That's really good news. And then that brings us to our last point. This is a faith call. It's not only a grace call, an effectual call, a transformational call. This is also a faith call. When we go back to Mark chapter 1, and Jesus comes by the Sea of Galilee and calls these four men to follow him, there's something ominous about this. And probably in this room, Avery's the only one that can pick up on this. She knows what the sea means um, in Scripture because she takes my Bible class at Beacon. The sea, Avery, if I put you on the spot, are you good? You good to, pull, you good to call it out? What does the sea mean? That's right. The sea is the place where the Gentiles come from. The sea is the place where the beast come from. The sea is the place where the chaos is. And so it's not by chance that Jesus calls these men beside the sea of Galilee. And the sea is so prominent here. Because what it's going to mean for them to be a fisher of men is that they are going to have to go fishing in the place where the beast is. And that's the Roman Empire, and that's where they are right now. They're in Rome. That's who Mark is writing to. They're going to have to go fishing in the Gentile Sea, where the chaos is. They're going to have to go fishing. When I was a kid, and I used to go fishing, we didn't get in a boat. We went on my dad's platform, and we were good to go. All right? But some of you have been fishing. Jason, you've probably been fishing, and it got pretty crazy out there uh, in the ocean. I've never had to worry about that because I was on a platform. But Jesus is calling them to get on a little boat and go fishing, and things go crazy when you're out there. He is calling them, listen, He's calling them to chaos. 
He's calling them to enter the fracas. He's calling them to enter the fray. He's calling them to go fishing in the chaotic sea of the Gentiles. And what that means is that this is a faith call. The call to follow Jesus and nothing else is a call that comes and we leave everything behind as these men did. Not all the calls of Jesus mean we leave our father behind, leave our business behind, but it does mean we are willing to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. But this is also a faith call because the end is open. My daughter knows what that means. Because the end is open. You see, Jesus doesn't call them and say, oh, by the way, let me tell you where it's going. I'll just tell you that it's in the sea. It's going to be chaotic. That's what I'm going to tell you. It's in the sea. It's going to be chaotic, but the end is open. You follow Jesus without knowing what following Jesus is going to cost you because he's not, you're not there yet. So you can imagine Peter reflecting as he's telling this to Mark. Peter's saying, I followed him. But man, I had no idea what it would be like to follow him. And here I am sitting now with the events of Mark in the past. Here I am sitting now with many of the events of the book of Acts in the past. I had no idea where this would see, where this would go. You see, beloved, to follow Jesus is to trust Jesus. Because you have no idea, and I have no idea, and Peter had no idea where following Jesus was going to take him, and you have no idea where following Jesus is going to take you. You have no clue where it will lead. Peter had no clue where it will lead. And it's not yours to know. That's why it's a faith call. Jesus says, follow me. And that's all he says, is follow me. We don't get a trailer in advance. We don't get to see a little clip of the movie before it happens. But we see Jesus. That's what we get to see. Jesus says, follow me. It's not yours to know where I'm taking you. It's yours to follow. And beloved, let me say this. This is an imperative and an indicative all wrapped up in one. Okay? Just like the call is... Jesus calls, we follow, but the power of the call is that the response is wrapped up in the call. So it is here. Jesus can only be known by being followed. Jesus can only be known by being followed. You cannot know Jesus from a distance. You do not get to stand in line and test the various Jesuses like you do when you go to 31 Flavors. I think I like this flavor of Jesus. No, no, no. There is one Jesus, and he comes and he calls you to follow him. And then he leads you, and he leads you through a life story that you would have never written for yourself because you would have written out all of the cost you would have written out all of the suffering. You would have written out all of the shame. You would have written out all of the trials. You would have written out all of the hardships. And if you had a chance to write your story, you would have written a story of glory without the cross. But there's no having Jesus without having his cross. And the great thing about Jesus 
is when he asks us to follow him, he fits us to follow him. And he gives us the daily bread mercy that we need to follow him that day. And today, he gives himself to us through the daily bread mercy of the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of being followed. Take your word today and command what you will and feed us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Come worship with us every Sunday morning at 1050 a.m. For information, visit solelychurch.com, S-O-L-I church.com. We hope to see you soon. Soli Deo Gloria.